If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us at London Review Bookshop. It's a pressure to see you here on a first call evening of the of the year, I think. It's mm. taken us by surprise. So thank you for coming out. I'm really pleased to have uh, Professor Han Jun Chang here with us tonight. Um, he will be talking about his latest book, he ha- of which he has several of his latest book, um, Edible Economics, with economist um, Daniel Chandler. He has a new book coming out in April as well, um, so we're looking forward to that. And it's free and equal, so that sounds like something an, uh, as well that you'll probably hear from us. I'll pass it on. Please join me in a warm welcome for Daniel Ahajun. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thanks, Natalia. Just to reiterate her uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be uh, hosting this conversation. This bookshop is one of my favourite places in London, and Harjun is one of my favourite uh, economists and writers, so it really is a, it's a major pleasure. Um, so as most of you probably know, Harjun is uh, a hugely respected academic economist specialising in the economics of development. Um, He's won a number of very prestigious prizes for his academic work. He's worked as an advisor to the World Bank and other international organizations. And he's currently professor at SOAS, uh, recently having moved from Cambridge, where he spent most of his career so far. Um, But we're here tonight because he's also a really brilliant writer uh, and the author of all of these sort of growing library of brilliant (laughs) books about economics. Uh, They really are the sort of best of economic writing uh, and sort of making economics engaging and accessible for a wider audience and, and sort of combining that with a with a critique of economic orthodoxies at the same time. Um, so we're here to talk about his new book, uh, Edible Economics, A Hungry Economist Explains the World, um, which is both a sort of fascinating collection of, uh, of stories, uh, sort of stories about food uh, and a sort of brilliant and sort of I don't know, quietly radical uh, introduction to some of the most interesting ideas in economics. Uh, as you'll have guessed from the title, it's a kind of unique project. Uh, it's definitely the most creative uh, way of writing about economics I've ever come across. Um, and, uh, you know, economics, I guess, has a bit of a reputation for being a dry and technical subject. And I think it would be impossible to come away from this book feeling that. Um, just to sort of give you an idea of how it works, basically each chapter starts with a discussion of one of, uh, of Arjun's favourite foods and sort of looks at the history of that food and sort of where it's come from, how it's been used, how it's often shaped the histories of, of, of different countries. And, and then that's a jumping off point, basically, for a discussion of a whole range of economic issues from questions about trade and development to uh, automation, climate change, the welfare state, uh, you name it. It's probably in the book. Um, and yeah, it's just a really, it's a, it's a joy to read. It's a book that sweeps you along with the, the quality of the writing. And I think as an economist, I thought I'd be sort of, wanting to get to the economics. Bits, but, um, but actually, I just was so absorbed by all of the, by the sort of histories of food too, and there's sort of serious stuff in there, like, I don't know, the importance of sugar plantations and the, the Haitian revolution, and then other sort of just intriguing, lighthearted facts, like uh, like the fact that carrots were originally white <laughs> and that Coca-Cola was an originally a kind of wine until right, yeah. prohibition forced them, sort forced its creators to take the alcohol out and fill it with sugar because the taste was so disgusting. So <laughs> all sorts of interesting things like that. Anyway, that's enough from uh, me. I thought 
Hadju, maybe since mm. the concept for the book is so distinctive, maybe we could just start there. I'm sort of interested in sort of why food and economics and and I guess sort of what your intention is for the book. Did you have? Is there yeah. Of, well, the yeah. short answer is why not? <laughs> 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 no, but that, that yeah, I have been writing all this. Uh, popular mass market whatever you call that uh, call it the uh, books about economics because i uh, have come to the conclusion that you know capitalist economy without everyone knowing at least some economics democracy is meaningless you know so many things are bound up in the economic uh, the decisions not just the usual things like you know jobs and yeah, rent and uh, heating bills and so on, but uh, also, you know, culture, you know, education. I've even met uh, some British people who try to defend the monarchy by arguing that it brings in the, a lot of tourist revenue. And I'm not a monarchist, but what a demeaning, ridiculous way of uh, defending an institution that you believe to be at the foundation of your society. So it's come to that. So, the, you know, I have been the, the, the writing in different ways uh, the books uh, that uh, try to bring uh, economics uh, to the citizens. And yeah, this is, uh, in a way, my last attempt uh, to make people interested in economics because. I hope it's not your last. Yeah. But... <laughs> the full stories uh, here are a bit like uh, the ice cream with which uh, some of your mothers might have tried to bribe you into eating broccoli or the, the cauliflower. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, this is uh, the best bribery because, uh, as uh, Daniel already mentioned, the bribery comes first. No? <laughs> So you can just read that, and if you don't like the economic story, you can just uh, skip it. I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, fun facts about the food, you know. The, uh, the, I could add one or two, like uh, the South Koreans have the highest per capita consumption of instant noodles, you know. Really great fun. <laughs> but uh, on a more serious note, uh, I, I thought that, uh, you know, that, that, I mean, apart from it uh, being uh, the two things, uh, economics and food being my greatest uh, passions, I think uh, that, you know, food is something that everyone can relate to. Mm. And it's uh, so fundamental to our survival. And I thought that uh, it uh, would be nice if uh, I can kind of get the readers interested that, uh, in economics by giving them these stories of food that uh, all of them uh, can relate uh, mm. uh, at one level or another. Mm. So mm. let's see whether it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely. I mean, I think it works, and I think your sort of the the passion that you have for these two seemingly sort of unrelated <laughs> subjects is what holds it all together, and it that sort of really comes through. Um, I guess the thing I wanted to ask about that's. I guess, you know, there's a theme in your other books too, and, and kind of maybe slightly more in the background to mm -hmm. this one. Um, but I guess is your critique of, is a critique of kind of mainstream or neoclassical economics. Yeah. And you have a sort of, you sort of introduce that topic in a lovely way in the book by comparison to the sort of blandness that you found in British food when you arrived in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and, and the, <laughs> Don't tell me about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I suppose you talk about how actually since then, British food has had this kind of amazing oh, yeah. revolution yeah. and yeah. sort of Brits have embraced the kind of unusually global cuisine, but the economics has moved in the opposite That's direction. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, maybe you could say a bit about that. And I'm just sort of interested in, I guess, your thoughts about why economics has moved in that way. And, and I suppose also why people who aren't economists should care. Um, yes, uh, well, the, first of all, the, I mean, until the 70s, there were many different schools of economics, you know, each of which are the, the proud of uh, its own kind of heritage, but having to take uh, each other seriously and engaging in debates. Uh, you know, the, sometimes it was death match, you know, I mean, the, uh, the debate on whether socialist planning is possible between the Marxists and the Austrians in the 1920s and mm -hmm. 30s, 
the so-called capital theory debate, which is a really an esoteric but important uh, theoretical debate uh, between neoclassicals and Keynesians in the 1960s and 70s. So it was a bit like a British food scene today. I mean, that you, I mean, especially in London, you have everything, and then they all kind of are proud of their own culinary traditions, but then they steal from each other, they you know, they, they learn from each other, and they, they, they create fusion food. I mean, I, someone told me that there's a fusion Korean-Peruvian restaurant in Birmingham. I've never been to Birmingham except to the university, but probably I should go there you know, to, mm -hmm. to check it out. Yeah? So it was like that, but since the 1980s, it has become very uh, monotonous. I mean, the one tradition called neoclassical the tradition that uh, has uh, completely dominated the economic debate. You know, like all other economic theory, it has uh, some great uh, things to say about uh, the world and the economy, but uh, it doesn't have a monopoly over you know the, the wisdom and the truth. You know, I mean, the, the, like all other traditions, it has uh, weaknesses. Mm. And uh, it uh, looks at the world in a very p particular way. You know, it's an individualist theory to begin with. You know? It assumes that people are rational. You know? I mean, of course, uh, there are small variations, but that, uh, essentially that's the view. And uh, most importantly, it doesn't ask questions about uh, the underlying distribution of income, wealth, and power. You know? Because it uh, operates on this uh, the, the philosophical principle called the Pareto uh, the optimality in which uh, the, a social change is uh, considered an improvement only if it improves uh, the, some people's welfare without hurting anyone. No, this is a very the, 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 the noble the, the, the philosophical position because uh, the, you know, before Pareto, there was this uh, utilitarian tradition in which you, know, the, 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 you are supposed to pursue the greatest uh, happiness of the greatest numbers which meant that the, the minorities and the, the, the weaker people were just uh, ignored yeah, in the name of the uh, greater good. So it uh, the, is a noble attempt to defend the, the individual rights uh, against uh, the tyranny of the majority. But if you take it to the extreme, it means that uh, you cannot change anything about the status quo. Yeah? I mean, that uh, you accept the status quo and see whether you can move things around a bit uh, to make some people better off. Yeah? So it, it has uh, that, that, uh, also that, this kind of uh, fundamental uh, limitations. Mm. So my view is that, that, that you know, depending on the, the uh, kind of uh, the situation, depending on your political and ethical values, uh, you have to choose uh, different theories uh, to understand the world. So a theory may be very good at that, uh, analyzing uh, kind of uh, the price movements in a very stable macroeconomic situation, but might be totally useless in understanding how we can deal with uh, the huge uh, the structural problems like uh, climate change. Yeah? Mm. So, you know, it's, uh, food is like that. You know? I mean, uh, what is a great fair that uh, on a cold winter evening, you don't want to touch it if you are sitting in the sun in the, the southern Italy, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, you have to the, the, the kind of, uh, choose the right food uh, depending on where you are. Yeah, mm. what you want, yeah, and uh, what you feel like. Mm. So, I mean, uh, my view is that, that economic theories are like that. But unfortunately, the, the neoclassical theory has uh, come become dominant. Uh, I mean, it's a very complicated story. But that, uh, picking on from what I've just said, partly because it that, uh, accepts the status quo very easily. Yeah? Because that uh, you know, Marxists uh, they always ask questions about the property relationships. You know, is it that uh, just uh, is there exploitation? Mm. I mean, neoclassical economics doesn't do that. So the people uh, who benefit from the status quo uh, find that what they say more comforting, and therefore it gets uh, more prominence in the mm. say mainstream media. It gets uh, more research funding, and then. Before you know it, that uh, uh, one school has uh, completely dominated uh, the, the the whole scene. Yeah? Mm. Do you think that's changing at all? Do you see? Because there have been, I feel like there's been more awareness of that dominance and more critical voices, including yours, out there. But do you think? Yeah, that's no, having I, much that, that is. Uh, 
I mean, the, there have been these voices, but the, the institutional logic of the academia mm. is uh, very the, difficult to dislodge uh, because, uh, you know, the, the politicians can vote it out, can be voted out, then business leaders uh, can lose their jobs, but university professors have tenures. Eh? <laughs> so the, yeah. for 30 years, uh, the, you, are, you know that uh, the guys are going yeah. to be there. And, Yeah, so that actually there have been a lot of uh, recent research on how, you know, the, a very small number of elite American universities uh, completely dominate uh, the mm. economics profession. Yeah, so I have a PhD student who now teaches in Sweden who did this uh, dissertation on the sort of power structure within the economics uh, profession. Mm. Of course, uh, he did it in the Department of uh, History and Philosophy of Science, not in economics. Yeah. Uh, Uh, and he showed that uh, basically in order to, well, the, the, put it this way, that the, to get anywhere within the economics profession, you have to publish in the top four journals, yeah? I mean, I don't, uh, don't want to uh, elaborate on this uh, yeah. because uh, most of you are probably not economists. And uh, two-thirds of uh, those uh, the editors of the, those four journals are from just four universities, yeah? Harvard, MIT, Chicago, and Stanford. Yeah, mm. so it's extremely yeah. concentrated. Yeah. And it's I mean, yeah. you get so used to that just being the reality within economics. Exactly. Right? In yeah. other disciplines, yeah. it's a completely different That's right, story. Yeah. Sort of, it's surprising having been in that world and you discover that like nowhere else really does it. Exactly. No other discipline yeah. really organizes yeah. itself. Like, yeah, and that uh, you um, know that uh, they used to teach uh, something called history of economic thought, uh, discussing how economics has developed since the days of Adam yeah. Smith and David Ricardo and so on. Yeah. I mean, they don't teach that anymore in the <clears throat> most universities. Yeah. yeah. Whereas at the, in the sociology and political science, I mean, that's yeah. uh, kind to of... To understand the yeah. history of your discipline. Exactly. Yeah, the, 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 one of the basic yeah. Uh, staples. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. So not <laughs> some, a little space for optimism, but not so much at the yeah, moment. Yeah, but, uh, but no, I'm by, uh, the, the, in the long run an optimist, uh, especially because uh, the young generation, you know, they have after the 2008 financial crisis that uh, started this uh, movement uh, called Rethinking Economics, mm. which you know, tries to yeah. challenge uh, the economic orthodoxy, demands yeah. uh, the uh, kind of reform of uh, yeah. teaching curriculum. Yeah, and I'm starting in, to see that coming Yeah, actually in the like Netherlands, the I mean, so. the, this uh, group of uh, former student activists has uh, have, uh, produced an uh, economics textbook. Yeah? yeah. So yeah. yeah, in the long run, I'm uh, hopeful. Yeah. You know. Okay, good. Um, all right, we should probably, let's turn maybe to some of the, I feel like I could talk to you about the, yeah, the problems of the economic yeah, profession all night, we will so do that, that, we can that save that for yeah. after. Um, but uh, so turning to, I guess, some of the themes that uh, particularly interested me in the book, I mean, there's so many things we could discuss, but um, maybe just to start with, I guess, the theme that's maybe most central to your academic work and running through lots of your books, um, which is, I guess, to do with the economics of development and particularly kind of, uh, I suppose, debunking the myth that free trade is the key to economic growth and prosperity. Right. Um, so I wonder, I mean, that might be familiar to some uh -oh. people who've read your your other work, but I think it's so central that maybe if you could just sort of give us the the sort of hot take on, yeah. on, on that aspect of your, yeah, that, of your work. Yeah, to keep in with the, the keeping with the tradition of the book, uh, the, you know, the chapter on the, I mean, there are a few chapters which uh, touch upon this issue, but uh, mm. the, uh, two chapters are particularly important in this regard. Uh, the one is uh, called prawn and the other is called beef. Uh, yeah, so the, but the, you will never guess uh, how I go from Uh, Luis uh, Suarez, uh, the former Liverpool football player that, uh, from Uruguay, who is uh, famous for fighting other players, <laughs> as well as uh, being a brilliant uh, football player, uh, to uh, the, the problem with the uh, free trade yeah, in the beef <laughs> chapter. Yeah? So uh, it's uh, that kind of a book. Yeah? Uh, in the prone chapter, I discuss uh, why would the people who would gladly gobble up uh, crustaceans not eat insects yeah? because they are essentially the same things yeah you know maybe we should that uh, call the you know the insects that are that, uh, like uh, with names like bush prawns or <laughs> yeah? 
feel langoustine, you know? No, I mean, that, uh, please uh, try, you know, that, uh, not anymore, but uh, Koreans, that, uh, when I was young, I used to eat a lot of uh, uh, insects. Uh, so one popular one is that uh, grasshoppers, uh, like Mexican chapulines. Uh, the other one was uh, the pupa of silkworm. Uh, so this uh, silkworm, uh, the caterpillars uh, turn into a cocoon and you take the silk out from the cocoon and uh, what uh, remains inside, uh, you eat it. Yeah? So, you know, a lot of people eat the insects, but uh, a lot of people just find the idea horrible, but uh, just think, you know, to me, uh, you know, grasshoppers uh, look a lot cuter than the prawns, huh? <laughs> you know, all these tentacles and, you know, the uh, uh, antenna, you know. Anyway, so the, the, the story about the free trade is uh, that, first of all, there's a lot of uh, slate of hand uh, in the the way the mainstream economists promote the international trade. So they often say, oh, you know, look at North Korea, you know, if you don't do international trade, you know, you become like that. Yeah, which is true, but it doesn't mean that it has to be free trade. Yeah? And then you, what is important is trade, that you get technologies and goods from other countries. Yeah? And then you have to ask free trade, what I mean, whose freedom is it? Yeah? Free trade simply means that, that, that freedom for people who are doing the trading. Yeah? So that there was a free trade in the slaves yeah? in the, 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 the 18th, 19th century. Yeah? I mean, that the free trade was often imposed on countries by force. Yeah? The uh, most famous example being the Opium War. Yeah? So the British, when China said that we don't want the free trade in opium. They said, no, we are going to make you like it. Yeah? Pummel the country and then made them sign the, the, a treaty, Nanjing Treaty, in which China was deprived of the right to set its own tariffs. Yeah? So China had the free trade, whereas at the time, Britain had the very high tariffs. Yeah? So the, whose freedom is it? Yeah? Mm. And thirdly, the, 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 as I told in the, the, the prone chapter and the, the couple of other chapters, basically when the, the you are a developing country, you need to protect and nurture your young industries in the same way that, that, that you protect and nurture your children. Yeah? Hence the name, but infant industry protection. But uh, the uh, very interesting fact is that this uh, theory was uh, the, not invented by some communist guy, not invented by some, I don't know, Korean. It was invented by an American, yeah? an American that's, uh, who's so famous that you all have seen his face, except that you don't know who he is. Yeah? It's the, the, the guy on the $10 bill, Alexander Hamilton. Yeah? He was the first ever finance minister of the United States, uh, what is called uh, the Treasury Secretary in the country. And he invented a theory. Yeah? And uh, he invented the theory, but the practice he learned from Britain, yeah? mm. which at, uh, especially under the, the Robert Walpole, the first ever prime minister, implemented the policies uh, to basically protect and nurture its weaker uh, manufacturing industry, especially woolen manufacturing against the stronger economies of uh, the Netherlands and Belgium. Yeah? So there are so many like uh, myth and mm. sleight of hand and uh, misuse of uh, terminology, you know, mm. the, especially the term free trade. Yeah, I mean, people think, oh, yeah, free trade, uh, that this means everyone is uh, going to be free. Yeah? Free market, this, is, uh, that, that, that this means that everyone is uh, going to be free. But it's a very the particular way of understanding freedom. Yeah? I mean, but uh, probably that you should all that, that, that read uh, Daniel's book uh, that when it comes out, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, this uh, notion of freedom is uh, very problematic because that, uh, you know, freedom that uh, free market, free trade uh, economists uh, praise is uh, freedom mainly in the economic sphere. So if uh, other freedoms uh, clash with uh, economic freedom, then you should uh, suppress it. This is why Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek openly supported the military dictatorship of uh, uh, General Pinochet in Chile. Yeah? 
because they saw, thought that his uh, predecessor, the Salvador Allende, I mean, was a flaming socialist, which he wasn't, uh, that, 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 that trying to destroy the, the private property and for Friedman and Hayek, uh, the freedom of property owners uh, to use uh, the, uh, their property in the most uh, profitable way was the most important freedom. Yeah. And also even within economic freedom, but uh, the, the most important freedom is, that, uh, as I just said, the freedom of the property owners, yeah? not the workers. Yeah? Workers are freedom but to strike. If it clashes with the, the freedom of uh, property owners, that should be suppressed. Yeah? So you have to really understand that the kind of uh, philosophy uh, and ethics that are hidden behind all this uh, rhetoric, because yeah, who doesn't like freedom? Yeah? But uh, that you have to be uh, really careful in understanding what this means and what it actually does. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, I was just, I mean, isn't part of the history that you tell is, uh, as you already mentioned, I guess, about countries uh, imposing their idea of free trade or free trade imposing it on other countries or other countries didn't, weren't able to choose that for themselves. And I was sort of interested in the, you know, you, there's a sort of historical version of that mm -hmm. through the story of empire and, uh, you know, I think, yeah, various countries that were forced to accept these kinds of yeah. agreements. I was also interested, though, in the what the sort of modern equivalent of that is. There are, I mean, you talk in the book about some of the ways in which existing international institutions continue to sort of prevent poorer countries maybe from adopting the kinds of strategies that might be most effective. And I, I was particularly actually interested in how that might how the sort of all the negotiation of all these Brexit free trade deals might fit into that. Like, are, yeah. we, are those deals being struck in a way that perpetuates a particular approach to development? Yeah, well, the, basically my view is that free trade among similar nations is good because it uh, stimulates each other. Mm -hmm. But free trade among uh, nations with uh, very different levels of development mm -hmm. is uh, the, the more beneficial uh, for the rich uh, countries mm -hmm. because... Uh, when you have uh, free trade, that uh, the weaker country will uh, never be able to uh, climb up the ladder, if you like. Mm -hmm. yeah? So the uh, example that I give uh, the, in the book, uh, in a chapter called Noodle, uh, yeah, is uh, that uh, in seven, 1976, uh, the South Korean car manufacturer, the Hyundai, started producing its uh, first own model of cars. Yeah? In that year, they produced 10,000 of those cars. Yeah? In the same year, Ford produced 1.9 million, and uh, General Motors uh, produced 4.8 million cars. Yeah? So 200 times, yeah? 500 times. Yeah? So if I took a time machine, I went back to 1976 and told people, look, this is a totally unknown car manufacturing in Korea, uh, which then was a low middle income country. Uh, this company just in just over 30 years uh, will be bigger than Ford. And under 40 years, it will be bigger than General Motors. They would have put me in a mental hospital. Yeah? But this is what happened. Yeah? From 2009, Hyundai produced more cars than Ford. From 2015, it uh, produced more cars than uh, GM. Yeah? But this didn't uh, the, the happen because of free trade. It was actually, it happened exactly because uh, the South Korea refused to have uh, free trade in cars. Yeah? So until 1988, all imports of all foreign cars was banned. Yeah? Until 1998, import of all Japanese cars was banned. Yeah? Because there's no way, yeah, you could, have, you could argue that maybe they could have uh, done it a few years earlier, but you know, there was no way if uh, South Korea had a free trade in 1976, Hyundai could have survived. Yeah? Mm. Now, the interesting uh, the point is, uh, however, the, by having that protection, by having that uh, restrictions on com uh, competition, in the long run, South Korea actually offered uh, more competition in the world car market. Yeah? Mm by challenging the Americans, yeah? by challenging the Germans. Yeah? Mm. So, you know, it, 
<laughs> it's just a much more complex. That's right. Yes, <laughs> uh, that yeah. uh, never this uh, need that story yeah. of free trade good. Yeah. You know, protection is bad. Uh, yeah. Like everything, free trade can be good <clears throat> and can be bad. Yeah, protectionism mm. uh, can be used very well, like uh, the, they did in the Korea and Japan, but uh, can be abused. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I was just uh, sticking with the the sort of South Korean Hyundai story. I suppose the thing that comes out in that story and also in in others too of of, of sort of countries that have succeeded in developing quite rapidly is that they've often had to often it's involved asking the sort of current generation to make sacrifices mm -hmm. for the benefit of future generations being richer. So as you just mentioned in South Korea, there were very restrictive controls on what could be imported. Uh, yep. it was, I think it's basically nothing other than raw materials and, and exactly, machines. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a story in the book about you having to, you sort of discovering M&Ms on the black market oh, because yeah. they were, uh, Absolutely, they were yeah. banned. Yeah, I had um, a dealer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I wanted that sort of, that. I was sort of interested, I suppose, in that question about how countries handle that trade-off. You know, South Korea also had very sort of weak labor laws and, oh, yeah. and you know so there's a lot of sacrifices I suppose went into that economic miracle and I was wondering I mean, if you have how do you think about making that trade-off do you think there are countries that have got that wrong or right yeah no I mean uh, these are very tough uh, questions because uh, it's uh, one thing to say that uh, because of this uh, miracle economic development South Koreans of uh, today live much much better than the, their parents' uh, generation. And it isn't just about the, the material the comfort. Yeah? We are talking about the people living longer. You know, when I was born in the early 1960s, life expectancy in South Korea was uh, 53. You know, I should be dead. Yeah? I'm uh, 59. Yeah? I mean, that means that, that, that not seeing your child die that, that, as an infant. Yeah? I mean, the poor countries have high infant mortality. Yeah? It means uh, living uh, kind of a uh, uh, healthier life, uh, that, uh, in a warmer house, and so on. So, you know, the, the, the implications uh, for human welfare that, uh, of this kind of economic growth is uh, enormous. But, you know, I don't think that uh, we can ever and we should never try to you know, quantify these things, but uh, how do you say that this all justifies you know, workers who had to work uh, for 14 hours a day, uh, being hit by the, the, the foreman, you know, mm. that being refused to be given soup in the canteen because uh, that, 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 that would uh, make them uh, uh, make the factories that, that, that give the workers uh, fewer toilet breaks, you know? mm. I mean, how can you really justify that uh, with what yeah that the uh, Koreans are mm. enjoying now? I mean, uh, can you really uh, justify that that, that there was that uh, political repression? I mean, it wasn't like at uh, Chile or the Argentina under military dictatorship, but still, I mean, hundreds of uh, people being uh, imprisoned and tortured and. You know, that mm. some of them even killed, you know. I mean, can we say that, well, that, uh, you know, only, only, the, you know, the 500 people die, so it's uh, justified? No, I, I don't think we can ever do that. And, mm. But unfortunately, the human histories are like that. I mean, the, even, you know, uh, if you think about another scenario where they try to do it more slowly, more humanely, Mm -hmm. and uh, grew more slowly that uh, would have meant uh, that kind of uh, in the long run uh, possibly more suffering so mm. I mean this is a question for philosophers I, yeah, <laughs> yeah yes but, uh, don't, I mean I have my views but yeah, yeah I mean I, yeah. no they're yeah. incredibly difficult ethical I don't have answers yeah yeah I mean in a way I just I have a, a sort of second question with my philosopher's hat on sticking with a similar theme um, you, you have a chapter in the book I think it's the chicken chapter uh, where you critique I guess ideas about equality and fairness mm -mm. Uh, you know the sort of left I the sort of uh, socialist idea at least well although I think it's quite hard probably to find socialists who really think but anyway the mm. idea that that everyone should just be treated exactly yeah. the same that sort of 
And you have a, a great story though about mm. someone who did think that. Yeah. Um, and then the sort of right sort of wing idea that markets more or less give people what they deserve. And mm. anyway, you have a critique of both of those yeah. ideas. And I mean, I'd be maybe interested to hear a bit about that. But I also was wondering, I suppose I reached the end of that. I was sort of wondering what your view of sort of fairness or justice would be, if any, or you know, are there, are there any particular thinkers that you would look to for thinking about yeah, those questions? Yeah, yeah I mean, the, yeah, the way in which uh, chicken turns into inequality, the, it's uh, one of my <laughs> yes. favorite stories, you know, that, that it uh, came from a friend of mine who was uh, doing PhD with me. He was from India. And he went back home on the, I mean, this was uh, late 1980s, so the, the Soviet airline called Aeroflot, yeah? Apparently it was awful in every conceivable way, but uh, the, he took it because it was by far the cheapest. And he said that uh, every flight, they would uh, give the exact same meal, this uh, whitish, goose-bumpy chicken, which was tasteless, no sauce, you know, the cold, you know. So that uh, one day, the uh, audacious uh, passenger uh, asked the stewardess, uh, "Can I have something else?" Uh, uh, because I'm a vegetarian, yeah? and the stewardess answered, "No, you can't. Uh, this is a socialist airline. Everyone's equal. There's no special treatment." Yeah. So from there, I uh, reflect on uh, this idea of uh, equal treatment. What is a uh, really equal treatment? Because uh, people have different needs, yeah? So that, that even like really basic things like bread, you know, that, I mean, that, is it really fair to, uh, to give uh, the same bread to everyone, yeah? Same weight according to their age, uh, weight or whatever, yeah? No, it's uh, not because, uh, that, you know, the that, 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 that person might have celiac or uh, she might be a Jewish person that going through Passover, you know, that when that they cannot eat the uh, labeled uh, bread. So, you know, the, um, my criticism of uh, the, the uh, well, this admittedly the kind of bastardized uh, the version of a uh, socialist uh, view of equality was uh, that uh, we need to really pay more attention to needs. Yeah. So what apparently is uh, equal is often unequal because you know toilets. Yeah. I mean, why do you have this uh, snake in queues that are in front of female toilets in, the, say, theaters, yeah, uh, compared to male toilets, yeah? Because uh, that someone had this idea that yeah, half the population male, half the population female, yeah. So same space, yeah, very equal, but it's not, yeah. So you know that uh, I I that uh, say we need to think about needs uh, more carefully, but then also that uh, people on the at the other end of the spectrum, who say what matters is uh, equality, equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. I mean, at one level it sounds great, but uh, once again, I mean, uh, would you call a race fair simply because uh, everyone starts at, uh, from the same starting line? If one person's got only one eye, another's uh, got uh, only one leg, yeah? So you need uh, some equality of uh, capabilities of the contestants, which can only be guaranteed that uh, if you uh, the equalize outcome uh, to an extent, yeah? because otherwise uh, you, you will have to raise uh, the everyone in the same collective uh, crash like uh, the, in the brave new world. Yeah? So that, uh, basically we need to uh, think about capabilities. So my view is that I, not just opportunity and outcome, but also needs and capabilities, mm -hmm. all these complex things uh, need to be kind of uh, taken into account. And also you need to be, I don't know, the, the, uh, pragmatic and balanced, yeah? mm -hmm. because uh, you know, problem with a lot of academics is that uh, they find one great principle and they want to apply it everywhere. Yeah? But then that, that, that it becomes a the, the problem, yeah. Because you know, even if you think uh, it is that uh, good, I mean, yeah. Let's uh, illustrate with uh, numbers. You know, that if you look at the correlation between your income and your parents' income in, say, Britain or the U.S. I mean, this is uh, from the '90s, early 2000s, so it might have uh, changed. But 
the correlation is like 80%. Yeah? In Scandinavia, in the Netherlands, it's like 30, 40%. Yeah? Mm. So, yeah, I think it, that, that, that shouldn't be 80, but that it shouldn't be zero. Yeah? Because I, I think that, that people need to be that also that, that kind of rewarded for you know, that, that investing in children. But you know, not everyone can, even if uh, that they want to, make that investment. So that the society has to make that investment. So, I mean, the, the choice uh, should be, you know, the, between like, uh, I don't know, the 20% and 60% rather than, you know, 80 and 10, yeah? Mm. So, I mean, the, and I don't think there's any philosophical principle that can actually tell you whether, you know, 10 is better than 20 or the 30 is better than 60, yeah? Mm. So, I mean, in terms of uh, philosophy, I'm basically that uh, a pedestrian. Yeah, I mean, I've never that that systematically that studied uh, philosophy. You mm. know, I mean, uh, yeah, that uh, a bit of Amartya's in here, a bit of uh, that uh, Karl Marx there, but mm. never really. But on the other hand, that, that you could uh, say that economics is a philosophy because it used to be, at least in this country, a branch of uh, moral mm. philosophy. And you know that uh, Adam Smith was a professor of uh, Jewish uh, prudence. You know Karl Marx has, that uh, the, said that uh, the the job of the philosopher is uh, to change the world, not to interpret it. And by philosopher, there he basically included the uh, economists. Uh, so I mm. hope uh, what I do is a bit philosophical. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I think definitely, I mean, the, the discussion of it in the book is definitely far from pedestrian. So it's surprising that you haven't read more philosophy than that. I mean, reading that chapter, I was, you know, it's, it's rare to hear economists seriously engaging with those kinds of questions at all. So, uh, you know, I, I yeah, love I to think see about that. those yeah. things a lot, but it's uh, more like uh, the coming from the empirical work I do yeah. rather than starting from the yeah. principles and working yeah. Yeah, the way through. Yeah, Interesting. yeah. Well, anyway, I would, I would love to talk more about that, but I'll, I'll sort of we can save that for for after. Just I was I had just a question picking up on the the vegetarian on the airplane mm -hmm. story, um, which was, I suppose I was you know you have a chapter on climate change in the book, and I was I suppose thinking about the importance of the food system for you know in the context of the climate ecological yeah. emergency that we're in uh and i suppose i you know you, you touch on it but in a way i was surprised there wasn't more on on sort of how how significant that is uh and i was wondering i mean partly if you have any thoughts about about that and the sort of need to move towards a more plant-based diet mm -hmm. and i was wondering how you would cope with that because you obviously love meat so much and you know and sort of all kinds of cuisines and i was sort of feeling uh, worried on your behalf yeah 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 uh, well i mean the reason why i don't have i mean i have some of it yeah the, so in recommending you know insect eating yeah. Yeah. yes that's true. yeah in criticizing beef uh, that yeah. i i that do that mention those but yes yeah. i mean that i deliberately kept away from those uh, topics because yeah. I saw the book as uh, the kind of, uh, well, I didn't want to write a book on economics of food, yeah, yeah. Uh, how they yeah. are produced, uh, traded, yeah. uh, consumed, and wasted, yeah? yeah, because there are a lot that, uh, uh, of uh, good books on that, yeah. and I don't think that, uh, I didn't think I had uh, anything particularly interesting to add there, so uh, that's why, but Yes, I mean, I love uh, the meat, but uh, I think uh, we should all try to eat less. And also, the, there are cuisines uh, where meat is uh, not essential, you know. So, I mean, there are a lot of... Uh, the, the, the... Well, the, basically, my view is that, uh, you know, animals do a lot of work to make things tasty. Eh? So that uh, if you want to come off uh, that uh, meat, that uh, you need to find way to make uh, vegetables and other plant-based things uh, more interesting, which requires uh, more imagination, more spices, you know, more uh, different ways of uh, that, that, that doing things, you know, that, that 
one that, uh, of my favorite things is uh, this uh, thing called uh, deep fried to uh, stick chunk fan that, that you find in dim sum restaurants. Uh, the, and it's uh, the, at one level a ridiculous dish uh, because you deep fry the dough stick and you wrap it with uh, this uh, kind of rice uh, the, the covering. Yeah? So it's a carb on carb. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, by making the texture completely different, uh, because this the chang fan is very soft, mm -hmm. kind of uh, the, the silky kind of thing, and mm -hmm. dough stick is uh, crispy and crunchy, and I mean the, the Chinese have but uh, produced a beautiful uh, dish. Yeah? Mm. I mean of course it has uh, some uh, soy sauce and so on. Yeah? So yeah, you you can be creative, but uh, and uh, eat more uh, of those things and. Yeah, I mean, I try my best at, uh, not to eat that, uh, too much meat, but... No, I didn't yeah. mean to... Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. The, no we all have a duty much. to cut, cut but, down yeah. our, the, the, yeah. our meat consumption. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've noticed we're running shortish on time. I want to make sure we've got time for Q&A. So I, I was going to ask you questions sort of bringing us up to date and about the sort of current economic context, but I'm sort of, maybe those will come up in the Q&A anyway. Um, my final question, maybe sticking with the food and cooking theme then was just, you know, when people go and get your book, as I hope they will, at the end of the event, is there a recipe book you would recommend pairing it with? Oh, no, I mean, it's a very kind of... Uh, a favourite one? I... Or a... Well, I, no, I wouldn't uh, say that because, that uh, you know, uh, I don't know whether <laughs> I should uh, say things like this, but, uh, you know, in every recipe book, I find only a couple of recipes that mm. I end up using. Yeah. And probably the, the writers uh, do not expect you to re uh, use all of them. Yeah. yeah. So the, I wouldn't say this favorite recipe <laughs> yeah. book. Yeah. But yeah, I'm uh, seeing very interesting things up yeah. there. Like, I mean, also your book, in yeah. fact, each chapter you start with your own, with a favorite recipe of your own. So maybe it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've that... done your book of favorite recipes, <laughs> except without the details. But, That's right. No um, details. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah so I thought, uh, 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 cook uh, on also dish uh, from that book, uh, Falastin uh, by uh, mm. Tamimi. Yeah. Which is uh, great. Uh, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean that uh, you you can just uh, follow that forage uh, for <laughs> recipes and uh, find yeah yeah. But uh, basically, my attitude is that, that uh, if it's uh, tasty, I don't really care where it comes from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it could be just uh, made up uh, by me or a yeah. friend or that uh, from a great uh, cookery writer yeah. or. The, you know, something that you ate uh, on a foreign holiday. Less, uh, the, the, yeah, the, basically my view is that, that, that whether it's the economics or food, you know, the, we need the imagination. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Because when you think about it, the world is what it is, uh, only because uh, some people long time ago or more recently imagined that another world is possible. Yeah, yeah because uh, the 200 years ago, everyone thought that uh, it is uh, totally unrealistic uh, to propose that Americans uh, that abolish uh, slavery. Yeah? You know, that at some point in the, the 1830s, uh, 1840s, cotton and tobacco, the two slave uh, the crops, uh, the accounted for 65% of American export. Yeah? Can you imagine uh, getting rid of that? Yeah? You know, 100 years ago, people put the women in prison for asking for vote. You know? Only like uh, the, the 50 years ago, the, the, uh, no, the, not even 50, the 40 something years ago, the Margaret Thatcher famously said that if anyone thinks uh, there'll be a majority black rule in South Africa, that the person is living in a cloud cuckoo land, yeah, where she was living. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, all these things have happened, yeah. but not because of uh, some iron law of uh, history, as uh, <clears throat> the, the people like Karl Marx would uh, the, the put, but because uh, people fought for these things. Yeah. Mm. And why do you fight for, for these things? Because you imagine a different world. Yeah? And that's that, that exactly why economics cannot be a science, yeah? because subatomic particles don't say, oh, I'm supposed to behave in this way, but I don't want to because I think ethically wrong. Yeah? Chemical molecules don't say, 
oh, we are all supposed to move in this way, but let's uh, move in another way. I think uh, that uh, we think uh, that it will uh, make the world better. Yeah? That's that, uh, what uh, makes uh, economics uh, both uh, interesting and, I mean, uh, yeah, for some people, infuriatingly mm. that, uh, inaccurate. Yeah? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Great. Perfect. That seems like a great note on which to turn over to some questions. I think we'll take a couple at a time, and I think someone will be walking around with a microphone. So if you just raise your hand, we've got one question over here. Uh, hi, thank you so much for an excellent um, conversation. Um, so I wanted to ask about this sort of idea of um, infant industry protection. So for me, I work in biotech. Um, and one of the things that we kind of rely on so much is like data sharing. So if you look like vaccine development, for instance, there's a lot of global data sharing. Um, but then you could kind of potentially envision a situation with infant industry protection, say if a developing kind of biotech field um, came up with a new vaccine, but it was say less effective to compare to like an AstraZeneca one. How, how would you kind of make that sort of decision there, or kind of what? Less effective compared to which one? Or oh, AstraZeneca or Moderna? I mean, it doesn't really, uh, really matter. Yeah, but you yeah. can envision a situation uh, where that happens. So, how would you kind of approach this? Approach that question in that context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should we take another question yeah, yeah, first? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Any other questions now? Just one over yeah. there. You've talked about how the history of economic thought um, has been previously taught and now is no longer taught um, in some universities. Um, Paolo Fieri once said, uh, if education is not liberating, the dream of the oppressed will be to become the oppressor. Um, and I'm talking more here about schools and uh, compulsory education. How do you think um, education can be liberating and what do you think... Uh, do you think economics as a as a separate discipline is relevant in schools and how can you make uh, educating people about economics liberating in mainstream education? Mm, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that some countries uh, allegedly do economics education in schools, but uh, they tend to be more like uh, brainwashing uh, kids uh, with the neoliberal ideology. Yeah? So yeah, no, the, basically, the, the, you know, I don't think uh, that, that we should impose ideas on the, the children, but, you know, that you should expose them uh, to different range of ideas, you yeah? So, you know, the, when the people ask me, the, who are your uh, the favorite the economists, I say, you know, Karl Marx and then Friedrich von Hayek. And then the Herbert Simon in the middle, the father of uh, behavioral economics. Yeah? And people say, how can you that, that like all those uh, three people? And I said, yeah, that probably I, that, that especially Marx and Hayek, I really don't agree with their conclusions, but they are very profound thinkers and they help, help me understand the world. Yeah? So the, as far as that, that, that you don't kind of impose on that, I... And I think that, that the trouble is that a lot of uh, times uh, people think, uh, yeah, I mean, if they are like, I don't know, six or seven is another story, but the children don't have uh, the, the ability to choose between different things. Yeah? And they think uh, they should be taught just one right answer. Yeah? But uh, I think uh, that's wrong. I mean, that uh, liberating education should be encouraging children to, you know, that, that kind of uh, understand different views of the world and then the, the, the helping them to choose uh, the, their 
own favorite ideas that, uh, and then teaching them the principles they that, that should be using in the choosing those things yeah that's how it uh, should be taught and yeah same with uh, economics whether it's uh, in school or in universities unfortunately that uh, you know professors uh, think uh, they have the answer you know that they don't want to contaminate or confuse uh, students uh, with uh, the uh, different ideas. Yeah, that's uh, one uh, response uh, that uh, the students working uh, for the Rethinking Economics movement uh, often uh, came back with uh, when they talked to their professors. Yeah? And they said, uh, we want to learn different things. Yeah? And they say, oh, you will get confused. Yeah? If you want that, uh, you can uh, learn these other things later. Yeah? But when it's later, yeah? and, uh, later you get a job, but uh, you don't have uh, time to the, the read Marx yeah? or Hayek. Yeah? So the, the, uh, that's, uh, yeah, I'm not completely sure I the, the understood uh, your idea, but uh, you know, in kind of uh, promoting uh, the, this uh, different sorry, the infant industries, uh, you can approach it uh, in different ways. I mean, the, the one, okay, the, 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 I'll, I'll indirectly answer your the question by the, the, the giving you an example, you know, the, in 1950, neither Japan, nor India, nor Brazil that, that could produce nice cars. Huh? The Brazilians, however, wanted nice cars. Yeah? So they invited the, the Runo, Ford, Fiat, and asked them to build nice cars. Yeah? But uh, this meant that uh, they never learned to build nice cars from, for themselves. Yeah? Brazil is still kind of uh, the, the, the producing cars using other people's technologies. Yeah? India, you know, they said, oh, Nice cars, that's an imperialist uh, the conspiracy. Yeah? We don't want nice cars. Yeah? So they got that, that, uh, kept uh, reproducing 1950s uh, British uh, that, uh, cars until it became an international joke. Yeah? The Japanese approach was, or later Korean, we cannot build nice cars. We can only build shit cars. So we are going to drive around in shit cars until we can build nice cars. Yeah? So I think that uh, you can uh, do this uh, infant industry uh, protection in this uh, kind of different ways. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it has to be with the goal of uh, joining the global market. Yeah, the protection uh, period could be five years, uh, twenty years, uh, twenty-five years. Uh, it depends. Unfortunately, the very often the countries in the middle just kind of uh, that, uh, give up. Yeah, so they keep reproducing second, third rate cars forever. And then finally, the, you know, the consumers revolt. And yeah, that's uh, the, uh, the, the, the very frequent, yeah? I mean, the, in India, the people said, no, we don't want the, 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 this uh, the rubbish car anymore. We want the liberalization, yeah? so. Great, should we take another couple of questions? If there are, yeah, just at the front row here. Oh. Take those. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Can you hear me? Yes. I will have a couple of questions on you, but I'll, I'll put it short. So, firstly, do you think, in your opinion, was Marx right in the end, in a way? And also, let's say, because you are economist, prediction to, let's say, within the next 20 years, we know there are uh, some newly new newly emerging econo um, economics like uh, bricks or mint, especially mint, they are very new. Would you say, according to a prediction, they can actually change the world order? Because at the moment, we've been seeing the capitalism as the main political and economic idea ideology within since the end of Cold War, pretty much. We've seen a decline. We've seen a dissatisfaction in uh, in capitalism and democracy with between us, within people, and also living in um, this Eurocentric, Westernized world we all live. And basically, all of us just deliberately sitting and watching this neo-colonialism, which has been going on by the three, three main institutions, which is the IMF, the World Bank, and the WTO. 
Is there anything to do about it? Because we've been talking about it, we've been discussing development and underdevelopment and equality, but it has been happening. It has been happening throughout centuries. And there is a question mark whether it will continue or there will be a massive change. Hopefully it will be. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Can I ask a question? Thanks. I guess my question is kind of like reading your books, like they made a lot of sense to me and like seemed logical. And um, when a lot of the time, like you look at politics and the current state of the world now, particularly our parliament, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, do you think that your books really have an impact on the current state of the world now? Um, and if so, how do you think they're doing that? Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> No, 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 I'm flattered uh, that uh, you even think it has impact. Yeah, uh, yeah on the first one, was uh, Marx right? Well, he was uh, right about a lot of things, uh, but he was also wrong about a lot of things. Yeah? So, I mean, it's the uh, same for everyone. You know, Hayek was uh, right about a lot of things, but he was uh, completely wrong on a lot of other things. Uh, so I cannot go into that, uh, but, uh, you know, that, uh, I think that uh, we, we should... Uh, I mean, that, uh, never uh, believe in one person, however great he or she is, that uh, we should never believe in just one school, however that uh, powerful and attractive by it may be. Yeah? And as for the, the future world order, I don't know. I mean, that, uh, you know, that uh, economists are the worst at uh, predictions, so that, that you should never ask an economist uh, to uh, make a prediction, especially of uh, such that uh, big things. But yes, I mean that. Uh, I mean all the time you think a certain uh, socio-economic order is uh, that uh, never going to change, but they do. You know? Sometimes uh, for the worse, but that 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 uh, hopefully that uh, for the better. So you know the the fact that. You know, the world is uh, completely dominated by one ideology and three institutions. Doesn't mean that uh, it will be like that uh, forever. You know, the, who'd have thought uh, uh, the British Empire would, you know, disappear uh, like that and uh, the country would uh, become an international joke, you know? <laughs> hmm? Yeah, I mean, it has uh, been replaced by the informal empire by the, the US, you know, but British empire has uh, disappeared, you yeah? And also the, this uh, the new colonial order, I mean, the, you know, yeah, you, you think that uh, it's uh, the, the, as bad as uh, it ever was, but I don't think it's uh, the, 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 as bad as it used to be, yeah? So. Hopefully that, that, that we will see that, that changes in the world order, but you know these are very difficult to uh, predict because uh, that very often you know that, that you try to project the future with information from the past, and sometimes it simply doesn't work. Yeah? And as for your question, uh, whether my books are having Impacts, yeah, hopefully it, uh, they are. I mean, I have uh, worldwide sold uh, the over 2 million books. Uh, so uh, hopefully that uh, some of the people who have read the book have done some things uh, differently. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, but that uh, more that, uh, kind of uh, immediately uh, in the context of this country, you know, that, uh, especially this book, uh, I think is that, uh, and, and that book, uh, uh, they are uh, used uh, quite a lot in A-level economics, so maybe that uh, these will make the students uh, a bit different. Uh, but then once again, that uh, I'm not underestimating the power of uh, the you know, system, so to speak, yeah, because uh, the students will soon learn that if they say things like what I say in these books, that uh, they may not get good marks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I had been taught those books in my A-level economics. That would have been amazing. Do you think? Do we have time for another question? Uh, uh, it's about. So, yeah, let's take one. Maybe just one more. One more question. One more question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just on there. 
Thanks again. Um, I just wanted to touch back on um, the question of economics education. I'm one of the people who did, you know, A-level economics and then didn't do that at university. So I was wondering um, if you could maybe talk about um, what you thought um, secondary education in economics should look like, because it, it kind, of, kind of sounded like to me that you thought that university education in economics should, it should expose economic students to more diverse, you know, perspectives and they, those people would help, you know, shape the, the field in the future in in a way that, you know, maybe is more ideal. But most people who study economics at a secondary level don't do that. Should, should it be more like a civics education program where people think about how to read the news and how to maybe change what is going to happen in the news in the future? Um, or any other thoughts you might have? Yeah, um, no, there already is a fair amount of hidden economics uh, education at the secondary level because that uh, history geography, they have uh, certain economic uh, models, uh, if you like, uh, uh, underneath. Yeah? So that, uh, why not uh, teach them uh, a bit more explicitly? And yeah, especially as you suggested, teach them in a way that, 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 that people that, uh, can use that, uh, what they learned uh, in interpreting what is going on uh, and not just you know the, the, uh, what happened during the industrial revolution and you know uh, what is happening in Saint Lucia with uh, climate change I mean all very important and helpful but that uh, you know I think that uh, it's uh, important to uh, bring those uh, closer to people's lives yeah I'll leave it at that okay all right thank you uh, I think we'll probably wrap it up there so just thanks again everyone for coming thanks Hajun for writing no, this thank you. book for sharing all of your thoughts and yeah I really can't recommend it highly enough so I hope lots of you are able to take it home and if you just join me I guess in thanking Hajun yeah so to thank you in return I'll be happy to sign the books if you want uh, thanks for listening to find out more about London Review Bookshop events visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.